Well, good morning, Bethel. Would you just bow with me in prayer, please? Our Father, we thank you for so many things, but supremely this morning, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who left the abode of heaven and the prerogatives of deity and took on the humble nature of humanity to walk the earth among his own creation, to be subject to the pain and frustrations and disappointments and hurts and harms of life, uh, to bear them in a physical body, uh, and ultimately to bear all of the sin of humanity on the cross as Savior, as Lamb of God, as the one slain from the foundations of the earth. We thank you that this has occurred because by it, we are saved. By trusting in him, by receiving this gift, by responding to it, not just knowing of it, but availing ourselves of his offer, we become children of God. Our sin crucified at the cross and the righteousness of Jesus, the only perfect one to ever live, transferred to us so that we are not just without sin, but filled with the righteousness of of a holy God so that we can stand before God most high. This gospel truth, Lord, is wonderful. And we gather here, not just because we have friends or because we sing songs or because we get to learn a little bit about the scriptures, but we gather here to praise and adore the one who did this and made our salvation possible. So, Lord, I pray that all we do this morning would be an act of worship for the one who saves. That we would learn about our God, that we might worship better by knowing him, by knowing the triune God who has orchestrated our salvation. So guide us now as we study your word, as we worship in song and in giving and in loving one another as you've taught us. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, uh, we won't be doing verses 1 through 30 as your notes said, uh, but 17 through 30. Uh, This is my typo. Um, It's a short week for all of us this week, and uh, so we're kind of rushing so that we can get things done and get home to celebrate Thanksgiving with our families. I'm going to offer a bit of a disclaimer uh, for the message this morning, and that is I'm going to talk a lot about food today. I hope you'll be all right with that. If not, tough. You know, you're already here. You're seated. If you get up and leave, it will be conspicuous. So you kind of are where you are. Uh, There are times when we eat a meal just to fill our bellies. You know, a yogurt for breakfast, peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch, simple soup for dinner, just standard fare uh, to cover our nutritional needs. Uh, Nothing special about it. But... There are other occasions where the meal that we are eating takes on great significance, great meaning. Uh, The preparations are thorough. Traditional dishes are brought out, and these dishes are important not just because they're family favorites or because we like the way that they taste, but they have a way of evoking memory and gratitude. In some cases, they're even instructional. Uh, There's probably no better example of this in our own tradition in the United States, then of course what we just celebrated Thanksgiving, right? Uh, 
Thanksgiving is a time where nationally we look back to the time where the bedraggled pilgrims arrived at Plymouth in search of a free expression of religion, something that I have a sense we will be fighting for in the years to come, a free expression of religion. We will be back to that same fight. Uh, and we recall really their fortunate meeting with Squanto, right? Uh, English-speaking uh, Native American and uh, who taught them how to plant and harvest from the land. And then a year after their first successful harvest, pilgrims gathered together with their native allies, and they had a three-day feast. And history tells us that Governor William Bradford sent out four men on what was known as a fowling expedition. Uh, so they went bird hunting. And, uh, and thus, uh, one of the common... Uh, parts of our meal for Thanksgiving is a turkey, although they probably shot geese, not turkeys, and they probably had oysters being located next to the sea. These are probably more traditional dishes than what we have, but studies show that 90% of Americans still celebrate Thanksgiving with the turkey, uh, probably most of us just out of habit than out of real thoughtfulness, but nevertheless... So as a meal, Thanksgiving looks back, right, to our nation's history, to some of the ways that God provided for us. It looks up and appreciates uh, God's provision and thanks him for richly giving us all things. And in our household, uh, Thanksgiving also looks forward to the holidays to come, to Christmas in particular, because this is a threshold in our household, and maybe I've explained this before, but... My wife loves Christmas, a little too much sometimes, just a little bit. She is practically an elf, and she starts thinking about it months in advance, and she's all whipped up about it, and she would start, as soon as it snows, she would put Christmas music on. I'm not kidding, I'm not exaggerating even a little. She would put Christmas music on, first snow. And so we had to come up with a pact that you could listen to Christmas music beginning November, but only instrumental. And then after Thanksgiving, the next day, then it can be Christmas music with lyrics. Otherwise, it would be Christmas music all the time. And so we have this pact. So we are now across this threshold in our home, and lyrics abound. I'll come home sometimes, and they'll have lyrics on, and I'll be like, hey, 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 we're, we're not there yet. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. And they go back and fix it. Some of our meals are not just food. Some of our meals are rather festivals, uh, and the meal itself is full of meaning. And today's passage that we're looking at here looks at the celebration of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was right along with it. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long celebration. Passover was the day before it. So really an eight-day festival beginning with Passover followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And uh, as with our Thanksgiving meal, the meal of Passover is loaded with meaning, rich meaning. It's not just a meal of our favorite dishes. It is a meal that was instructive and commemorating, and it had great spiritual significance for Israel. Uh, one, of the, one of the aspects of the meal uh, is that it was intentionally designed to stimulate storytelling of God's goodness to Israel and the Exodus and pulling them out of their bondage there. And I'll specify some of that in just a little bit here.
But what we find here is that in the midst of Israel's feast of unleavened bread and Passover, Jesus takes some elements off the table of this particular meal and he infuses them with new meaning and with new significance. And we're going to look at that today. Uh, In fact, I would say this. This exchange with his disciples around this Passover meal here, what we call the Lord's Supper, but this, this exchange with the disciples actually provides for us an interpretive lens by which we would understand all of the events that unfold from here to the end of Matthew's gospel. Uh, in other words, if Jesus had not told us about the significance of his broken body and his poured out blood, we might just look at the crucifixion really as the gory and tragic end of a good teacher's life. But instead, we understand the implications of them. Because Jesus taught in this moment and showed, in fact, how the Passover has been pointing to this moment all along. Uh, So look with me, if you will, Matthew 26, verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to go make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. So the first thing we encounter here is that Passover is presented really as a season of preparation. Uh, This is a really easy tone for us to appreciate right now. We are, after all, coming off of Thanksgiving, and you can just take a few moments and think about all of the ways that you yourself uh, prepared for Thanksgiving and prepared to celebrate it with uh, the folks that you did. Uh, so you had, you know, your decorating has, uh, uh, was done and probably now shifting uh, into Christmas like we are here, and I would like to thank uh, Julie Cavallo for, especially for thank, uh, decorating uh, the auditorium here, and also she's uh, made some uh, a visual for you this morning. So thank you, Julie, for that. I appreciate it. And um, But we are all in the midst of this preparation right now. And again, it starts with Thanksgiving as we prepare for that holiday. It continues on to Christmas and on to New Year's. This is a season for us of celebration and feasting and festival and preparation. Think about all the work you went into for your Thanksgiving meal. Think about planning your trips to Fred Meyer, right? Nobody wants to be caught at Fred Meyer after five o'clock the week of Thanksgiving, right? You learn this one the hard way. You do that one time and then you avoid it at all costs. You shop way in advance. You start gathering little by little. And and if you're anything like this, you always forget one thing, one critical thing. You know, I didn't get the bag for the turkey. We're out of aluminum foil. What? And you got to go back, and you go back to Fred's, and the cars are parked all wonky. You know what I mean? I don't know why people can't hold the row and park all the same. You get to some rows, and cars are in the middle, and you can't even go through. I don't know what people are thinking. You get inside, and people are everywhere. It's frenetic. They're competing over the last bag of flour, and it's hard to be thankful in there. Um, You're thankful when you get out. Um, In the same way that we experience this frenzy at home, at our own grocery stores, for our own holidays, Jerusalem was frenzied during the festival preparation of unleavened bread and Passover. 
Uh, historians tell us that the town would actually swell up to two to three times its normal size. Travelers would come in from the countryside to celebrate. They would bring with them their lambs for sacrifice. You would think Airbnb would be a really helpful tool you know, for them at this time with the town swelling up that size so people could find a place to stay. Uh, but it, it seems they would just go to their normal kind of go-to fallback accommodations probably year after year after year, those places they found that would accommodate them. Uh, common in, the, in Palestinian homes was to have an upstairs apartment guest room known as a kataluma, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be coming back to that later. Kataluma is translated sometimes as in or just simply guest room or spare room or upper room. So when, it tell, when, we, when we find in the Christmas story that there was no room in the kataluma, it's not a commercial inn, it was there was no room in the guest room of the house that Mary and Joseph were going to. The guest room wasn't available. It wasn't a commercial inn, but that's another story for another day. Um, and so it seems that they, people just kind of had to find their accommodations. What's interesting here is it seems that Jesus had a personal connection in town. When, he, when his disciples ask, where do you want to celebrate? He directs them to a certain man. And this man is unnamed. This really gets me going whenever I find mysteries like this in the text. I think, well, who is this? Who is this fellow? In the original language here, this isn't a generic, just go and find somebody. It was, go to that guy that you know I'm talking about. Go to him and tell him that the teacher wants to celebrate Passover at his place. So he's unnamed for us. I kind of wonder if it might be Nicodemus or maybe Joseph of Arimathea. I don't know. But uh, in any case, he tells him to go to someone specific. Uh, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. And what we see next here is that Jesus indicates uh, that this is his appointed time. This is scheduled. This is planned. It's worth being uh, sort of explicit and overt about this, that Christ's death was no accident. Nobody took his life from him. He surrendered it on his own. And the scriptures tell us in Revelation 13, 8, that he was slain from the foundations of the earth. In other words, this was planned. This moment was planned. It was scheduled. It was appointed. This sacrificial event has always been in the mind of God as his redemptive plan for mankind. It was not God's B plan that he came up when things went awry in this creative experiment. It was always God's plan A. It was always God's purpose. And that oftentimes brings up questions from people such as, if God knew that mankind were, were going to rebel, why bother creating them? Or why bother creating them with the liberty to do so? And I would simply answer this way, that God seeking to create a people and a creation that would worship him out of, the will, out of their will, out of their volition and their free choice. He made us in his image as free moral agents so that we could either obey him, love him, or not. And in doing so, he allows for rebellion. He allows for sin. He allows for that, that he might display his justice and his righteousness in judging sin. And he does it so that he might also display his unconditional love for rebels like you and me. And that he might pour out his grace and his mercy and redeem 
a people for himself at his own expense. In other words, there are things that we would not know about God unless he had created mankind with the liberty to either choose or reject him. But that he might fully reveal all of his character traits and his nature, he made things that way. John 1, 12 through 14 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not out of natural descent or of a human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And so what I want to underscore is that this moment, this appointed time was years, centuries, millennium in the making, in the planning. Its timing was fixed and appointed. Also, there's, I think, a really interesting contrast going here. You see mankind, or you see the disciples busy preparing for this day of celebration, preparing the aspects and the elements for the meal of Passover that they might celebrate together. So they're busy making preparations. And yet what we see in contrast is that God from eternity past has also been preparing for this very poignant moment. Uh, One thing that I would hope you would understand um, many of you call Bethel your church home. You've been here for a while. You've heard me say this before. And I, to, to those of you, I'm reminding you, to those of you who are new, maybe you're hearing this for the first time, but all of the scriptures tell one story. All of the scriptures tell the story of Jesus. God in the flesh, sacrificed for sin, so that a sinful man can be restored to a holy God. That is the story of the scriptures. It is a single story. And so the scriptures are not a a collection of stories like Grimm's fairy tales with morals and principles and whatever. That's not what the scriptures are. They are a single story of the person of Jesus Christ who comes to save mankind. Every element that we find in the Old Testament, every what we might call a substory, is a is a plot line, is a foreshadowing, is a type, is a prophecy, is a picture looking forward to the person of Jesus. Everything that follows afterwards is how people who have received Jesus live with him. It's all one story about the person of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. And so as we read in the text here about the preparation for Passover. I want you to see that that's just what's happening on the human plane. But God has been preparing this day from the beginning of the world. And I want you to just keep that in mind as we go on. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. The third thing we want to see here uh, in the opening section is this. That the preparation for Passover was extensive. Both on a human plane and on uh, a heavenly plane. Now, again, we can easily relate to this in light of our most recent holiday and in the holiday season. We can understand all of the the plans that go into these things. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a uh, seven-day feast where all one ate was unleavened bread. Uh, Basically, this festival began with Passover, uh, and these two events took place during the Jewish month of Nisan, which corresponds to March and April on our calendars, Okay. Uh, Passover began the celebration. It was the first, and it was followed by the week-long celebration of unleavened bread. Uh, And preparing the Passover meal, in fact, if you kind of want to study up on it a little bit and see where it comes from and what prescriptions God gave to us, you can look at, at Exodus 12, and that outlines sort of God's first instructions here. But on the eve of Passover, 
the house would be purged of leaven. Uh, you know, in our house for Thanksgiving, you're having company over, the kids get chores, right? Okay, I need someone to sweep off the, the front porch. Someone's got to shovel this. Someone's going to vacuum the house here. Someone's got to feed the dog. So, and we dole out the, the, the chores, right? This is all hands on deck. We're having a festival. Everybody gets to work. And I would imagine for Passover, this was a time when, okay, everybody through the house, we're looking for any yeast anywhere. We're cleaning this, purging this, and it would be burned prior to the celebration of Passover. All of that would need to be completed by noon on Thursday, the 14th of Nisan, okay? That same day on the 14th, according to the instructions given in in, uh, Exodus 12, the lamb, the family's lamb, would then be taken uh, between the hours of 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock, or twilight, in order to be slain at the temple. The fat portions would be burned on the altar, The blood would be poured out into basins and would be poured out by the temple priests at the foot of the altar. The priests and the people who are participating in this, this practice would sing from the Hallel, which we find in Psalms 113 and 118. And um, that was just a part of the celebration. I'm going to come back to that. The feast also involved four different cups of wine, each with their own significance. There's a lot of different elements, and I won't go into each one. There were greens that were served. There was unleavened bread. There was even horseradish to bring tears to the eyes, right, uh, as a part of the thing. It was a very rich, instructive meal. And each aspect of it was teaching something about Israel's history and about God's way of uh, redeeming them. And so all of these things for the meal, just as for your Thanksgiving meal, needed to be procured. And, you know, they needed to go to the grocery store, the Fred Palestinian Fred Meyer of the day. And so when Jesus gives the instructions, you can imagine them going down really the day of Passover and, you know, donkeys all askew outside the, you know, grocery, whatever. After sunset, which began the next day, their day didn't switch over at midnight like ours does, it, was, it happened at sunset. So now uh, after sunset begins the 15th of Nisan, then the household would gather together in a festively decorated home. And they'd eat the Passover lamb together. And this lamb would have been roasted on a spit with bitter herbs. The meal began with a prayer of thanksgiving. Then the first of four cups of wine, each with their own significance. Something else that's fascinating to me is then there something would would go on which was called the Haggadah, which means the telling. Uh, usually the, uh, a child, a boy in the home, would ask the question, what does all of this mean? Very natural question for a young boy. And at that point, the significance of each of these elements would be taught. This wasn't just a big meal. This was an education. It was curriculum on the table. It was a teaching of God's history and his redemptive plan in pulling Israel out of bondage. They also set an empty seat at the table, which was reserved for Elijah, because Elijah was supposed to come and announce the arrival of Messiah. We, of course, uh, believe and see, as Jesus taught, that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, preparing the way for Jesus. But in a classic Passover meal, they would have an empty seat reserved for Elijah with a cup 
sitting in front of it with hopes that Elijah would come and drink of the cup. But they were teaching themselves to be looking forward to the arrival of Messiah. What's fascinating too is that the rabbis commonly taught that the most likely time of Messiah's arrival was on the night of Passover. Think about that. Here we have Messiah celebrating Passover with his disciples on the night he's being betrayed, right? This is the moment they've been looking for. And even their celebratory meal, their instructive festival with all of the curriculum of it was looking to see and to receive this one, God's Messiah. The seven days that followed were celebrated as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, where all that was eaten for a week was unleavened bread to remind Israel of their journey out of Exodus and of God's rescue. It almost seems like it was God's way of carbo-loading the Israelites so they could you know, sustain this journey. And I just, I just want to pause here for a second and just, can you just recognize all of the beauty of this meal, of this celebration of Passover and all that it was portraying and all that is being taught here to point people to Christ. Um, and in the midst of this richness and this goodness and all that's being celebrated, a traitor uh, is revealed. Look at verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. Well, something really interesting here. Uh, I hope it stood out to you as I was reading. I tried to emphasize a little bit. Do you notice how Judas referred to Jesus? Rabbi. In contrast to how the disciples referred to him. Lord. What we find is that Judas only refers to, when we look through the New Testament and we look, look at the Gospels, we see that, Jesus, or that Judas never refers to Jesus as Lord. He only refers to him as rabbi. Uh, I think this is incredibly significant. In other words, we cannot simply receive Jesus as one who is a good teacher, who knows stuff, who is wise or has some things worth saying because they're practical in life. Jesus has to be Savior and Lord. His teaching is not just optional, but needs to be authoritative. It needs to be that which we orient our lives around. Our lives are to be brought into conformity to his life because we are his apprentices. And I think that a lot of people begin a relationship with Jesus in large part because of what they get from him. Well, we want salvation. We want forgiveness of sins. We want this stuff. We want eternity in heaven. We want to be part of the body of Christ. So, sure, I'll have a relationship with Jesus because I want stuff. I want things from him. And then I think we get to a season in life where things start changing. 
it seems to me there's a natural progression in our relationship with Christ where our early commitment to him maybe is driven by what we get, but then things start to become costly. Somewhere along the way, uh, it's harder to be a Christian. We have to bring our lives in conformity to his teaching and to his life. It costs us comfort. We have to be selective about relationships. We can't just do whatever we wish. Our appetites have to be brought in conformity to the will of God. We realize that our resources are not our own, but they belong to God. And finally, Jesus can't just be an accessory to our already self-centered life. We have to make sure that he is our Lord, that he is the authority of our life, not just a rabbi, not just a teacher. And so I think this is a natural progression that all of us go through. We go through this time where our faith gets tested. And we have to answer the question, is Jesus just a teacher or is he Lord? And that's really the question that I want to put in front of you this morning. Many of you here this morning know of the teachings of Jesus, but do you know his lordship? You may know about him. You may know what he has taught. But he is, is he your Lord and Savior? I would submit to you a challenge. If he is not your Lord, you do not know him as Savior. You only know him as a teacher. You only know him as Judas knew him. And of Judas, it says, it would be better if he had not been born. I think of the words of the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. He talks about the costs of discipleship. And if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you know the costs. But he says this, it costs a man as much or even more to go to hell than it does to come to heaven. What a great turn of a phrase. Absolutely, there are costs in following Jesus, but they pale in comparison to the significance of losing our eternal soul. The costs of discipleship are small in comparison to what non-discipleship costs us. Finally, we, uh, we see here, well, the disciples are preparing for Passover. Judas is out preparing for betrayal. And I think... I talked to you last week about sort of the composition of Scripture and how carefully Matthew organizes and puts things together here. And I think this is fascinating how he's contrasted these two. The disciples are out collecting for the meal, excited about the Passover. Jesus himself excited about the Passover. But Judas has slipped away. And he is coyly off negotiating a deal that will simply feather his nest because Jesus is not his Lord. He's just a rabbi. And Jesus will not enrich him as he's learned in these anointings where a whole year's supply of perfume is poured out in a moment. Judas realizes this isn't a lucrative prospect following Jesus. So he's going to go and get himself paid. And I think as we see this contrast, we realize he's not one of them. He's not cut from the same cloth. He's just enriching himself while Jesus and the disciples are preparing to give of themselves. And we come to the third and final main point here, is that we see this commemorative meal infused with new meaning. Look at verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to each of his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you, for which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the, that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So two points here. First of all, Passover commemorated the deliverance from the bondage of man. We've talked about that last week, and I've reminded you of that this morning. But now, the Lord's Supper commemorates the deliverance from the bondage of sin. In other words, what Passover was introducing, the symbols that Passover kind of brought up, is now completed in Christ. These symbols of deliverance are now fulfilled with the substance of Jesus Christ. He is our Passover lamb. His blood poured out is the cup of the new covenant. The promise given by Jeremiah and Ezekiel of this new covenant, this time when the Spirit himself would indwell us, this has come. And that his body was broken for us. Uh, there's a, a part of the celebration where this is known as the Afikamen. And I want to display this for you. Julie, thanks again for doing this. This is beautiful. Uh, on the Passover table, there would be three pieces of bread, one on top of each other. I think I've got five here. Julie must think I'm hungry. So. And the father would reach to the second, the one in the middle, and would pull out the unleavened bread. Actually, I'm going to go a little further down because that one's already broken. There we go. Let's say that was the, the second one down, one on top, one underneath. So three stacked on top of each other. The father would pull out the one in the middle, and he would break it. And one piece would actually uh, be broken into lots of other little pieces and passed around the table. And the other, the larger of the two breaks, would be hidden away to be pulled out later on at the end of the meal. Now let me ask you a question. Does that sound like anything? Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. His body is broken. He took the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Christ's body would be broken at the cross. His body would be hidden away in the earth to be pulled out later on in victorious resurrection. Even the symbolic elements of the Passover meal look forward to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So much instruction and curriculum on the table. And yet here is the substance of it in their midst. Jesus Infusing new meaning into this meal. A meal that was once symbol. Now Jesus becomes the substance of. This meal had been prescribed 400 years prior. And now its full significance comes together in Jesus. And I think that really, I think of what Jesus said in, in Luke. Luke's gospel in the 22nd chapter. He talks about his excitement to celebrate this meal with the disciples. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I don't think that's just because Jesus was hungry, you know, or he just really liked Passover. Can you imagine the excitement of, of, of Jesus thinking, you know this meal 
you know these elements, you know these symbols. I'm going to sit with you and show you that I am the substance of them. What you've been waiting for, looking for, longing for is here in your midst. I am fulfilling what God has promised to you. Uh, next week is the first Sunday uh, or the first Sunday of the month. And so we will celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper uh, together. And I hope that after ha- walking through some of these elements that it carries on a uh, great new significance for you. I hope you'll be able to kind of pull out some of these elements that we've walked through together. And, um, but before we do that, or before we get to that next week, um, I want to draw your attention to something right now, which is that some of you need to partake of Christ now. You don't know Him as Savior. You don't know him as Lord. You know his teaching. You know stuff about his life. Maybe even at one point in time, you made a simple kind of a prayer, uh, hoping that he would save you from your sins, but you've never done anything by way of discipleship since. And my encouragement to you this morning is this. You need to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And if you don't know him as Lord, I don't believe you know him as Savior. He is not the authority of your life, the center of your life, and that which you're orienting your life around. I don't believe he's your Savior. And my encouragement to you this morning would be to respond. To respond to the gift that has been given in Jesus. To respond to his death and his burial and his resurrection on your behalf. That your sins would be punished in him and that his righteousness would be transferred to you. So I'm actually going to close this morning with a prayer that invites you uh, to respond to his offer of salvation. So would you bow your heads, please? And if you're here this morning, and you have never responded to Christ's offer of salvation, or you have never known him as Savior and Lord, then I would invite you to pray a simple prayer uh, following the example that I give you. God, I know that we are all sinners, that that is our default position. And I know that you will not tolerate sin, but by your justice and your righteousness, you will punish me. And Lord, I wish to take refuge from your coming wrath in the grace of your given Son that the penalty for sin would fall upon him and not me. I wish to be forgiven. I wish to be infused with the righteousness of Christ. I wish the Holy Spirit would take up residence in my life. I wish to begin the adventure of being your child and your disciple, honoring you as my Lord. Thank you for your teachings and for your life and your death and your burial and resurrection. I receive you now and the salvation that comes with you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.